Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this evening. Same uh, bread and wine, same people, same church. You'll hear a quick update uh, from the wardens, uh, from Jonathan, our junior warden, during our announcement period. But as we begin, I simply want to say a sincere word of thanks to our host, Alexandria Presbyterian Church, for their hospitality. We're in a sermon series on the creeds. We've been considering one portion of the creeds per Sunday. So for a sermon text this morning, you can go ahead and turn to the creeds. So far in our series and through the creeds, you and I, people, have really not been the the focal subject. We have been told and we have affirmed the creeds that we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. But the impact of that belief on you and me is really left on on the table. The creeds affirm that Jesus is God and he rose That he came down from heaven, suffered and died, rose and ascended into heaven. And aside from that little phrase for us and for our salvation, the impact of that belief on you and me is, is really unexplored. So the creeds thus far have really been about things that are out there. And now as we turn to the final two statements of the Nicene Creed, the attention turns to you and me. Humanity. And in these final phrases, we find this phrase. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. These two statements address us. They tell us, what does all that came before have to do with you and me? And the creeds address two problems common to all people. The first problem is the problem of sin. And the second problem is the problem of death. Further, the creeds identify the Christian solution to these two problems. The Christian solution to sin is remission. And resurrection is the Christian solution to the problem of death. As we've moved through this creed, this series, we've noted that the creeds are very economic. They don't say everything that could be said. Much more could be said about God. Much more could be said about Jesus. Much more could be said about the work of the Holy Spirit. And much more could be said about the benefits of the Christian faith for you and me. But the creeds here are identifying those things that are most important for us. And those things which are further reflected in the preaching of the early church. For instance, the Apostle Paul said, I delivered to you a first importance that Christ died for sins. This Sunday, we'll think about the first phrase. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And the final phrase, we look for the resurrection of the dead, will be the subject of next Sunday. So this morning, I want to explore this statement. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins under three simple headings. Three words that require further exploration. First, the problem, which is sin. Secondly, the remedy, which is remission. Thirdly, how we receive uh, the solution, which is baptism. So let's jump in. First, the problem. The problem that the creeds identify is the problem of sin. 
And a potential problem for us is that the problem of sin is not that problematic for you and me. I've been in church a long time. I know many of you have as well. And so I'm well averse with the idea that I am a sinner. And I heartily affirm it and I heartily agree uh, with that statement. Even if you're not very familiar with church, I doubt it would take much convincing to persuade you that you too join the ranks of the rest of us as a sinner. No argument there. It just, the problem is, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Does it? When I stay awake at night, I do not think about my sin. I think about, I wonder where the church is going to worship on Sunday. (laughs) Sure, there are a few moments when I do something especially egregious and silly that I lay awake at night kicking myself and wishing I hadn't said or done that. But for the most part, my sin really doesn't bother me that much. And probably the same is true for you. For most of us, for most of the time, we readily admit, yes, I'm a sinner, guilty. But it just does not seem to be that big a deal. Our, so because the problem does not seem that significant, the remedy may not seem that impressive. And we may find ourselves thinking of this great benefit of the Christian faith, the remission of sins, in the same way a little boy unwraps a promising present under the Christmas tree only to find that that promising present was nothing more than clothes. Yes, the boy may think, I need clothes. Yes, clothes are important, but really I was hoping for something with a little more pizzazz. So our first task this evening is to remind ourselves why sin is such a big deal. Why it is one of the two. It brings up there with death. Sin and death are our two big problems. And so we want to, I just want to start by exploring why. What's, so, what's the big deal? What's the big problem with my sin and your sin? And to do this, I just want to work, from a way, work by way of analogy. And I want to explain. Uh, unpack how conflict works in an important relationship in my life, Uh, marriage. I know all of us are not married, but I think this analogy will make sense. And we're going to work from the ground, uh, a human relationship to see how sin affects that. And then just imagine those same impacts vertically with God. So I have a great wife and I have a great marriage. And even And a great wife, with a great wife, and in a great marriage, we have fights. Not uh, violent fights, uh, uh, but heated fights. And I think that's a natural part of every relationship. Marriage, parenthood, friends, etc. Conflict happens. I've been told the old adage that most conflict is 10% substance and 90% of actually how you fight. And I believe that to be the case. So a typical disagreement in my family will start with legitimate. I want this, you want that. 10% is legitimate. The problem, of course, is not that 10%. The problem is the 90% that comes after. And I'll speak, certainly, uh, just speak for myself, but I think my wife would affirm this, that I, she would not affirm this about me, I I think she would affirm this about herself, too, that when we get in a conflict, become uh, engaged in conflict, we're not our best behavior, and I get angry. And I say things that I wish I hadn't said. And I become obstinate and hard-headed. 
and unwilling to see it in any point. And that's where sin enters, not, not the legitimate conflict, but the, how the conflict unfolds. So what is the result of this conflict? What is the result of sin in my marriage? Well, the result is, is estrangement. And there's a funny thing that happens when I am not at peace with my wife, and that it feels like my home has ceased, in some ways, to become my home. There's a sense of estrangement. Uh, everything gets a little bit more difficult. Conversation around the table becomes forced. Sleep becomes difficult. We're, we're, we're estranged from another and estranged and strangers in our own home. And an icy chill replaces the usual warmth of our happy home. And I can just imagine, I thank God it hasn't happened, but I can easily imagine the scenario in which that estrangement simply doesn't come to an end. In which that estrangement lasts for days and then weeks, weeks followed by months, months followed by years. And eventually that thing which had been living, a living relationship, simply dies. It is easy for me to envision how that happens. The Bible equates sin with death. And that is accurate. And most of us have probably experienced the death of a friendship, a death of a relationship with a friend, a relative. Conflict leads to estrangement. Estrangement, unchecked, leads to death. That dynamic is at play on the horizontal level. And I want to suggest that the same dynamic is at play vertically as well. The same dynamics are at play, only God is not the offending party. We sin against him. Unresolved conflict leads to estrangement. Unending estrangement leads to death. And if estrangement from an earthly relationship with my wife has painful consequences, then the estrangement from God has even greater consequences. The problem behind all of our problems is sin. We are estranged from God. In the same way, my home is not really my home when I'm not at peace with my wife. We are not at home in God's world when we are not at peace with him. And therefore, everything is simply hard. Work is hard. Relationships are hard. Everything you put your hand to is hard. And sickness and death have entered the world. Why? Because of estrangement caused by sin, and left unchecked, unresolved, this estrangement that we experience now will lead to an eternal separation from God, what the Bible simply calls hell. Our sin is not one problem among many. Our sin is the primary problem behind every problem you encounter. So now, having considered the severity of the problem, we now move to the solution. Remission. 
It's a great word, remission. Note the word is not remove. Christians remain, sadly, very much sinners. Doesn't go away. We believe in the remission of it. Now, that's a strange word. We often think of remission in terms of a, a disease. This disease is in remission. That's not, not how this word is used in this sentence. Here's how it's used. Every month, I receive a bill for my mortgage. And the top part of that bill, the top two-thirds, will explain the debt that I owe, the interest that I owe, the taxes that I owe, the principal that I owe. And on the little bottom third, there's a little statement uh, that asks for my payment and tells me the bank to which I send it. Excuse me, to which I send it. And on the top of that little third, that bottom third, there are these words. Remit payment to whatever bank we bank with. And it is in this sense that the creeds use the word remission. A remittance is a payment. We believe in the remission of sins. Now the debt I owe to my bank is great. Greater than I really ever thought possible. But according to the Bible, the debt of sin is greater. In the 130th Psalm, the psalmist asks, If you, O Lord, were to note what is done amiss, O Lord, I could not stand. Think about that image. If you were to note everything done amiss, O Lord, I could not stand. The psalmist is imagining the accrued debt the accrued debt of sin. And the confession of sin in our old prayer book accurately describes the burden of debt when it says, the burden is intolerable. The burden of debt. Because my debt to the bank is great, my payment is costly. Because my debt before God is greater, my payment is more costly still. Jesus, by his death on the cross, Remits a costly payment for a debt that was not his. That costly remittance of our debt is captured succinctly in our creeds when we say, For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered, and he was buried. This is the payment or the remittance that Christ paid for the debt of sin. Just imagine with me the next bill you receive from your bank for your mortgage, or maybe you don't have a a mortgage. Maybe it's a credit card bill. The top portion is just your list of debts, explaining all that you owe. And in the bottom portion, that little tearaway is the portion you remit. But under that little portion, you find these words, paid in full. Someone made a payment on your behalf. Now imagine the debt of sin. Everything you've said, done, stray thought, mean, small-minded thing you've ever done or said or thought, that would be an endless stack of paper even for the best of us. And under that final third, you find that little section that says remit for payment. And you find these little words, paid in full. 
The solution to the human problem of sin is remission. The human problem of sin which alienates us from God, the solution is the death of Christ by which he remits payment for the sins of the whole world and reconciles us to God. The problem, the solution. Now thirdly, how do we receive what Christ has done? We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Baptism is what the church calls a means of grace. It is a way in which we receive what God has done for us. And there are other means of grace, what we'll do around the table. Receiving the bread and wine is a means of grace. Your faith is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. Worship is a means of grace. But as we've seen in the creeds, the creeds are identifying those things that are most important. And it may sound strange to us that the creeds identify not your personal faith, not the ardor of your repentance, but the creeds emphasize baptism as the primary means of grace by which we receive what Christ has done. And I wonder why. Why don't the creeds say, through faith in Christ, your sins are remitted? No. Baptism. Well, I have a, two suggestions. The first of which is that when the creeds cite baptism, they do so with the assumption of faith, the assumption of repentance, as we find in the, the passage, the, the, the story of the early church. For instance, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized. You hear repentance and baptism go together. Or Acts chapter 22, verse 16, arise and be baptized and call on faith in the name of Christ. Baptism and faith. I think it's safe to assume, the creeds assume, that the outward sign of baptism is accompanied by the inward reality of faith. But here's a second reason why I think the creeds may identify baptism as a primary means by which we receive grace. Because baptism, unlike your personal repentance or our personal faith, is objective. If you were baptized and you were baptized at a specific date and on a specific time by a specific person, a physical act involving your physical body, something done to you, baptism is objective. Your faith is subjective. It waxes and wanes. Your faith is strong one day, your repentance is strong one day and weak the next. If your reception of what Christ has done is based upon your ardor of your faith or your repentance, then it is on pretty shaky grounds. But baptism does not waver like our faith or our repentance. It is objective. It is not subjective. Martin Luther struggled with doubt his whole life. He had crisis of faith so severe that he doubted his salvation. So Martin Luther had a plaque made and he put it in his room and on that plaque it said, remember your, not your personal faith, not your repentance, Remember your baptism. The fact of his baptism, the fact of our baptism, is more reliable than his wavering faith and stronger than any doubt. We believe, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Three points as we conclude. Recognize the problem of sin. It is a big problem. Our biggest problem. You may think, does it feel like that? 
That's okay. Your feelings are unreliable in this matter. A passenger traveling in a train, in a climate-controlled coach, may feel very comfortable, very much at ease, even despite the fact that that train is heading off a cliff. The passenger's feeling of danger does not affect the objective reality of danger. Our experience of the burden of sin has little to do with the size of debt that we actually carry. Second, appreciate the remittance of sin that Christ paid on your behalf. He, was, he suffered, was crucified, and buried as payment. Third, put to use the means of grace by which we receive what Christ has done for us. Baptism is one means of grace. If you are not baptized, then be baptized. If you, uh, communion is another means of grace. These are all ways that God has said for us to receive what he has done for us. Public worship, prayer, and Bible study. These are all means of grace by which we receive what God has done for us. We don't know how baptism works. We don't know how communion works. We simply acknowledge that it does. A person can eat his dinner without understanding how nourishment works. And we submit ourselves to the water of baptism. We gather around his table, not because we understand how they work, but because we acknowledge that they do. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. It strikes me in the subject that we've thought about tonight and the topic of my preaching, there's really at the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus died to set us right with God. With so much new and so much uncertain about our church, I thought it providential and appropriate that we spend this evening thinking about this fundamental assertion that Christ died for the remission of our sin. I believe our youth are going to lead us in a sung version of the Nicene Creed. So, if I could have our youth come forward. The congregation can remain seated, is that correct? The congregation will remain seated. And we will hear the words of the Nicene Creed as they are sung. 